listening to The 10 Podcast, the discovery and design channel in health. Tune in with your host, Matt Patterson, to learn more about insights from the world of healthcare today. Hi there, Matt Patterson here, and thank you for tuning in to today's episode. It may be the first time to the podcast, but if you've been here before, you'll see we do a variety of different type approaches, one of them being these reflection pieces from me, from what I've learned. The other type of podcast we do is a one-to-one direct interview between myself and a guest about their speciality area. I'm very fortunate with Ten to be at the forefront of a community of people with such expertise in design and digital and physical design and animation, research and work design. And those from our community that come on the show have so much perspective to offer. And because of that, we're opening up some of these star podcasts to an insight on demand service where you can commercially buy the output for your specific needs. If this is of interest to you, send me directly an email at matt at weare10.co.uk and I'll explain more about the insight on-demand services we're developing. Thank you very much for listening today and over now to the main part of the show. Okay, it's... Always my pleasure to invite guests onto my show, but I have a particular enjoyment in uh, having Dr. Chitadas coming back on and talking to me today. Your podcasts with me have been very popular within my podcast series, some of the most popular ones we've done. So thank you very much for putting the time aside and coming back and talking to us today and welcome back on the show. Thank you so much, Matt, for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. Uh, I personally have enjoyed doing the podcast as well with you. It's great. We've, it's been probably, it's been well over a month. It may have been sort of six weeks since we last spoke. Um, for, for those of you who have listened to the podcast before, you'll probably have listened to one of our podcasts with Chikta. But for new people, and we do get them coming around the world all the time, perhaps you could introduce a bit about your background yourself, Shikta, so that our new listeners understand who you are. Absolutely, Matt. So my name is Shikta Das. I am a genetic epidemiologist. I actually wear two hats in my professional career. I work as a scientific lead in C4S Discovery a niche biotech company. And I'm also working as an honorary lecturer in epidemiology at University College London. My main research has always been in obesity, diabetes, and more recently in neurocognitive disorders. Um, Let's go back to my background. I did my PhD from Imperial College in 2013 and have worked as a postdoctoral scientist in both Imperial as well as UCL. In the last two years, I have kind of stepped out of academia to the exciting world of pharma and biotech, working for the uh, one of the top pharma companies in the world. And if I can talk about my research very briefly, then my most recent research has been exploring the ethnic differences between metabolites, or in simpler terms, I can call them biochemical molecules, for example, LDLs and the HDLs in type 2 diabetic individuals. 
my combined detailed understanding of this molecular mechanism behind the type 2 diabetes with my experience in genetics, it was really useful that I could explain the genetic predisposition and the risk factors which we observed in the ethnic community or the BAME community, which was faced during the outbreak of COVID-19 pandemic. And I guess this is some part of which what I'm going to talk about today as well. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we've had really fascinating conversations in the past about the BAME community, about risk factors and about the diabetic elements in relation to the first wave of COVID-19, where we were learning on the fly as as we were experiencing the earlier phases of the pandemic or the sort of early to mid phases of the first wave of the pandemic. We've now reached that question mark end of the first wave and a lot has happened and we've probably learned a lot in even the last six to eight weeks since we last spoke. Perhaps you could tell us what you've learned that journey you've been on. Matt, it's a very important question and I think as I've previously done, you know, I want to take a recap on what we have learned generally and then going more specific in my own research. So coronavirus was a novel virus. Uh, was a lot of research done during this pandemic itself, and it has been ongoing. So let me summarize what we know for sure now. We have currently 13 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 currently in the world. Sadly, we also have more than 500,000 global deaths. We have confirmed knowledge that it spreads from close contact, person to person, and through respiratory droplets from speaking, coughing, or sneezing. Symptoms usually develop within five days of exposure to the illness and the list of the symptoms have increased since we first started hearing about it and most public health organizations and health authorities have now widely been advertising this increased number of symptoms. We are also very sure of having a gold standard laboratory test for the virus and also for the antibody in case you were previously infected which is very good news. Uh, the best way to protect yourself is to wash your hands frequently, cough, sneeze into the tissues, and to avoid close contact with anybody outside your immediate family. Uh, we also were reminded very much to stay at home if you feel sick. Uh, avoid touching your eyes and nose and mouth. And most importantly, wear a mask if you are in public settings. A worthy action, which I think you have been vigorously promoting and being part of as well. Now, if I just move on more to another major learning for all of us, which has been this unequal disease burden from COVID-19 observed in the BAME population, especially those who live in the deprived area. We know that the Institute of Fiscal Studies reported the geographical spread of the vulnerabilities observed in the health job and families of BAME community. We also saw reports coming out of Office of National Statistics providing analysis on the COVID-19 deaths in relation to overcrowding, social housing and homelessness in local authorities. And they confirmed the key role of the spread of the infection within this overcrowding environment. Then Public Health England also published a literature review explaining the role of various factors which may put BAME communities at a disproportionate higher risk of COVID-19 death. It was very interesting to me that the factors such as occupation, population density, use of public transport, household composition, housing conditions, uh, including the overcrowding as we talked about, uh, were all part of the COVID-19 transmission and of inequalities in the pre-existing health condition, 
which we all discussed within this literature review. A substantial part of the report, which came much later than the review itself, which dealt with discrimination, stigma, fear, and trust, were published later and kind of added to our understanding of this problem itself. One of the key things which we discovered was among the pre-existing condition involved in the death of uh, pain population in COVID-19, there were at least one pre-existing condition, so 95% of cases had it, and diabetes was the most common pre-existing condition found among the, those deaths with COVID-19. Uh, in fact, 29% of all deaths involved diabetes as one of the pre-existing conditions. Now, these are very significant numbers for me who works in diabetes. And I think given my background in working in obesity, I think the links between obesity and coronavirus and diabetes makes a lot of sense to me personally. One of the links which you know I can explain in terms of very briefly about the obesity, diabetes, and coronavirus is how our body processes sugar, particularly high blood sugar levels, and how it has been associated with inflammation and a faulty immune response in people with obesity and diabetes. And this could be one of the reasons behind this high risk or high burden of having diabetes and getting infected, infected with COVID-19. It's interesting in relation to the specifics of diabetes, where early on in the disease state, it was perceived to be a respiratory disease, right? And actually now it's finding out that it's more of a metabolic blood sugar related, or there are highly correlative elements of metabolic blood sugar related issues that, that link to the prevalence of catching COVID and, and having it in a severe way that would make you hospital bound. How do you feel we've managed the that learning process and are we able to get those messages are those messages getting out there do you think um it's very interesting question matt so i would say that yes the message is going out maybe trickling out would be the right response here uh, instead of uh, you know the fast speed which we, i was expecting um i personally have been talking to several communities myself several groups several bame groups explaining this association and i think what is very very important is the fact that we understand this mechanism and understand our health better uh, a lot of discussions were around the genetic predisposition and technically speaking uh, there is no basis of ethnicity in genetics and we know that if you trace yourself back uh, right from to the start of uh, you know when we started uh, sort of populating the earth you will note that we all started from that one African man, you know, and then we basically moved and immigrated to different continents and then we grew there. And this diversity is very, very difficult to quantify in buckets of ethnicity. I don't think genetically it would be ever possible to find this. What we as a genetic epidemiologist try to look is for patterns and patterns of inheritance, you know, which we observe. So for example, if your parent is diabetic, how do you inherit a pattern from them and whether you express it depending on your environment. So those are very important facts which people have started talking about. My own research involves something called disease development origin, where we at the lifespan of an individual and try to trace when these genetic changes happened and environmental changes happened in an individual. So I think we are talking in the right direction. This is a lot of deep research coming into general practice, and I'm really happy about that. Excellent. It feels like we're making progress. In society, 
we've basically opened up in many ways in the past weeks and it's been some some have been quite strange and some surprising uh, and now we're seeing off the back of that local shutdowns in the likes of leicester can we talk about the elements of these local shutdowns from your perspective again with sort of diabetes and BAME in mind and perhaps it's more of a, a local targeted based approach it's a very good question, Matt. So we all celebrated the 4th of July as the Super Saturday, like it was the New Year's party. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, in Leicester, more than uh, a city for more than 300,000 people, they were put on a second local lockdown. We do know that 10% of all the coronavirus cases were identified in Leicester. So that was quite concerning. This alarming increase in infection, it was suggested that this increase in COVID-19 cases might have come from the transmission within households or via a failure of understanding physical distancing guidelines within communities. It, could, it was also suggested that it could even be workplace transmission and maybe the lockdown was over too quickly. The first lockdown was over too quickly. Public Health England proposed that the new uh, proposed a new set of data, which said that the median age of infected individuals was now 40. This represents a shift in age to the younger working age individual compared to the earlier in the outbreak, and that kind of explains this transmission within households and uh, within communities or workplace transmission, as I was mentioning earlier. So it could be basic precautions such as physical distancing and not wearing a mask, which were not followed during this process and might have increased this community spread. We do know that Leicester has high levels of social deprivation and a large ethnic minority population with pre-existing health conditions such as diabetes. However, currently we do not really have any conclusive data coming from Leicester to say for sure that these were the reasons to increase the infection. Uh, I do know that there is currently called to include more testing kits, facilities, promoting health messages in own languages, uh, supporting the workplaces uh, to move forward, you know, to reduce this infection. And this all makes sense to me. It's interesting. With, uh, I, and maybe this is just my lack of understanding. Is the data that we have at the moment taken from people testing positive, whether they are sick with the disease or not i.e it's just a positive test or is it positive testing with people who are then going on to hospital admissions etc what do, what does the what does the large numbers of people testing positive in, in leicester mean i think these people are the ones who have had the symptoms and they have contacted their health authorities with the symptoms so technically speaking as you just mentioned uh, matt these these could not be the real numbers you know, behind the infection which rise which we see. And uh, they could be a big number of asymptomatic people or the carrier groups you know, who might be taking the, transmitting this disease to vulnerable people. Um, to be honest, it's too early days for us to make any assumptions. And I think the best would be for us to wait for some conclusive data uh, to come through uh, these uh, places with high infection rates. So how successful do you think we've been about getting the messaging out there to the public? The places like Leicester, maybe Luton and Blackburn, uh, where it's been less successful potentially, is have we been missing a trick on anything in relation to getting the message out to specific populations? So Matt, as a public health scientist, we always knew reaching out to communities with messages from uh, about physical distancing was going to be the most tricky part in the whole outbreak. 
we know that a lot of Leicester residents were not aware of the physical distancing guidelines for a length of time. The most they heard were from government daily briefings shortly before the second local lockdown was imposed. I think, moreover, such public health messaging on physical distancing is very difficult to implement in a small and multi-generational household, as we see in Leicester. And I think something I've also said in my previous podcast is we do need the community influencer who can reach the community in their languages and can maximize the awareness as much as possible about these interventions. A lot of effort has been done by council as well. We have had some positive information coming out of councils in cities like Leicester that they're providing the information in the most commonly spoken languages to reach the community. I think there's another factor which we should really consider, which is this over-representation of BAME population as essential workers in health and social care, as well as transport and manufacturing, which really needs to be assessed. And we need to think about how we can protect these overrepresented represented BAME population working in these areas. Something I really found interesting last week was the Equality Minister's review published about some of the action plans, such as mandatory data collection on ethnicity within NHS and social care, increased research on community participation in BAME communities, and culturally sensitive occupational risk assessment. In near future, I would be really keen to see what actions has been taken in this respect. I personally feel that despite so many action plans, we are still lacking the mention of pre-existing health conditions and health inequalities within the BAME population itself. As we know from our previous experience, not much has changed after the Mammoth report from 2010. In fact, 10 years on, we still see the health inequalities widening. So with those widening health inequalities, and we have this current track and trace process that's going on at the moment, how has that been working for the BAME community in relation to it within society? How is track and trace working? To be honest with you, I have not really been following the track and trace process very much. However, I do know that the definition of the close contact which government is using within the track and trace uh, is being defined as an individual with 15 or more minutes of contact with, um, with an individual two meters of distance. And that is being currently used. I think the definition is a bit broad and that's what the experts have suggested as well. Because the definition is broad and it might let infected person go untraced. Studies have now shown that for every infected person, an average of 36 close contacts needs to be identified. Such a high volume activity can only effectively be done through digitization and automation, uh, for example, by using an app. And I think in the absence of an app in uh, you know, England, it follows logically that we are missing a lot of infection. Given majority of infected individuals are asymptomatic, it then follows that we are unwittingly increasing exposure to higher risk groups such as BAME, and as well as the general population, of course. It is then hardly surprising that Leicester with high BAME population has a major outbreak. Such contacts are only possible within commuting or shopping and tracing individual while during such activities are outside the close contact definition and might not be possible. Therefore, I think experts have been almost warning the government with this ad hoc system 
and are pointing concerns in several areas. So I'm not really 100% sure how successful this track and trace process has been, as suggested by government. Thank you very much for that. It looks like with inequalities in society, we're dealing with the road ahead as well as we can today. But we've learned a lot from phase one. What would you sum up as the main factors that we've learned from phase one? And what is the sort of second wave risk? I think the key point is that if we take no action, then this could be one of the biggest missed opportunity by society in 2020. And before we hit the second wave in winter, we really need targeted health advice for the BAME group. And we do know that historic systemic racism and experience of discrimination may mean that people are less likely to access healthcare. I think we really need to change these behavior. We need to address the stigma that BAME communities have about infectious diseases. And we need to build trust. Moreover, I think something personally as a scientist we can do is we can be more open in answering difficult questions with general public about their health. I'm very much keen to do so, and I am doing so. In addition to health, we need clearer instructions to employer on supporting staff with hygiene and physical distancing, or even providing PPE to those who are vulnerable. We need race and health committees set up to access and monitor a supported environment for diversity. We need more educational campaigns in understanding the culture. Matt, I think, you know, there's one thing which I have personally felt as well is that we need more leadership and protection for communities which are particularly vulnerable. They should not just be defined in ethnicity, but the definition should be wider to include all those who come under social deprivation. We've talked in the past about non-pharmaceutical interventions and, and we've talked a lot today about the diabetes factor uh, and the BAME community and others that are at risk. If we were looking specifically at diabetes, what would you do, what would you do to help increase our chances of decreasing the risk moving forward? I think, Matt, I've spoken about this in my previous answer as well, which is access to the healthcare, removing the stigma which we have, developing trust, uh, explaining them the disease factors and the underlying mechanism of the disease. I think all this makes us make informed decisions about it. To to be honest, before going more in detail about uh, individuals with pre-existing condition, I think one thing which we haven't really talked about is the effect of COVID on younger people who have been at risk as well. And although they haven't really been affected as much as adults, but they have been affected and especially those who are from the BAME community. And this is something I would like to address as well. I think these young people have had disproportionate impact on their health, both in terms of physical as well as mental and as well as learning. We do know from our scientific research that adverse childhood experiences can translate into biological responses of adverse inflammation and can persist into adulthood life. There has been extensive research done into this through the DOHAD. Let me just explain you what DOHAD is. And this is something I covered for my PhD. And this is quite interesting to know that, you know, in early 2000s, a theory was proposed called the Development Origin of Health and Disease Hypothesis, hence DOHAD, by David Barker. And it states that the disruptions in the fetal nutrition have significant effect on health outcome in later life. 
and he originally investigated the gestational undernutrition or the fetal undernutrition and cardiovascular disease risk in later life and he saw a significant association between them i think this kind of research and studies has shown that we have this lifelong and longitudinal effect of a disease which really needs to be addressed i think what we should be focusing on especially in terms of designing a better uh, intervention non pharmaceutical intervention is to really think about community led initiatives and we definitely need systemic changes uh, we have to make these interventions more multicultural we have to make it more involving and i think more or less we need more actions and less words so many factors there that lead us to community-based solutions and solutions that need to be rolled out to, to different communities across the country. So thank you for that. As usual, I would love to end by asking you my magic wand question, which is, as we were moving forward, if I had a magic wand, what would it give you to help the process in the future? Now, we've answered this in the past, and perhaps you may say, what has changed with the magic wand and what would it do for you now, Shikta? I think coronavirus has really brought us together as a community uh, but also has explore, exposed the fault lines of society if i had a magic wand as you say i would definitely use it to reduce the health inequalities we have always observed we have to remember that these health inequalities are modifiable and we can develop interventions which can reduce the burden of disease in bame communities which we have now observed during covid-19 the worst part would be not to learn from our mistake and see a similar pattern in future however i want to leave with a positive note map and my own experience has been very very positive which i would like to share ever since i began this journey of explaining the inequalities in bame communities i have actually met some wonderful people who have asked me excellent questions about this topic and this shows some sort of health awareness and increased uh, understanding of the mechanism of the disease which i'm really extremely happy that is happening thank you so much for shining a light on this for myself and for my audience uh, it's it's very important and it's fascinating it's enlightening and it's definitely educational and if we can take those things away and apply them um more the better the world will be for it so thank you so much for coming on the show again today i really appreciate your time i know you're a very busy lady and uh, uh i look forward to speaking to you again in the future oh thank you so much for inviting me again matt it has been really enriching experience being on the podcast speaking to your other speakers i have learned myself a lot of different things which i can implement further in my research so thank you so much for inviting me You're very welcome. Speak soon. Until next time on the podcast, I thank you for listening. As I always say, if you'd like to come on and talk about the side effects as a guest, we'd be delighted to talk to you. Email me at hello at wheel10.co.uk. Thank you again for listening. You've been listening to the 10 podcast. Subscribe on your preferred podcast provider. Also, do let us know what you think of today's episode. Music